What you find is that at points of geopolitical crisis or tension, it's basically universally been the case that whichever countries control the telecom infrastructure will use it for their purposes. So there's, there's basically been a, a guarantee in the past that telecoms infrastructure plus advanced computing power will be used by great powers for espionage and for military purposes when it is possible to do so. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron. All right. Uh, Thank you, Niels, and welcome, everyone. So if you had to name the single most influential man-made product, what would it be? Our guest today is going to argue that it's the semiconductor chip. He believes that there's no other item that has had a more decisive influence on international politics, shaping the military balance between countries and forging globalization than the semiconductor chip. And just to add a little spice to that, you're going to find out that the most advanced chips, the ones that we rely on for our most advanced technology, can only be made often by a single company using an extraordinarily complex machine that itself can only be made by a single company. And that creates what our guest calls choke points, vulnerabilities in our ability to produce the technology we need, but also very uh, important levers of power that can and have been used uh, by the U.S. and China against each other. Um, So the person who's going to help us understand this is uh, Christopher Miller. He's an associate professor of history at Tufts. Uh, University of Boston, and author of a really exceptionally entertaining and eye-opening new book called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Chris, uh, thanks for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about about your background? You've written three previous books and they're all about Russia. Um, So tell us, I don't know, if you um, if your family from Russia, have you, what's your connection there? How did you end up, you know, um, writing those books? Well, I've got no, uh, pre-existing connections to Russia. Just got interested in the country's history and its economy 
when I was doing my graduate studies. And, and to me, the history of the Soviet Union uh, provided a, a sort of fascinating uh, uh, alternative case study to what economics looks like in countries that I was familiar with. And uh, the more I studied it, the more I wanted to understand, well, how did that system work since it existed for 70 years? So it worked badly, but uh, nevertheless persisted for a long time. And uh, the three books that I previously wrote before publishing Chip War were on different aspects of Russian history, politics, economics. And that actually gave me the initial idea for uh, the book that ended up being Chip War, because I started writing Chip War not intending to write a history of semiconductors, but intending to understand why was it that during the Cold War, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union were capable of producing the key military technologies of the early Cold War, nuclear weapons and long-range missiles, but the Soviets completely failed to produce the weapon systems and the computing components in them that defined military power by the end of the century. And so as recently as Russia's war in Syria from 2015 to present, at least 80% of the bombs Russia's dropped in Syria have been unguided dumb bombs, uh, totally like the, the bombs that would have been dropped in World War II because Russia's really struggled to miniaturize computing power and deploy it to weapon systems in a systematic way. And that seemed like a puzzle that was worth exploring. And I realized as I did that research that actually the key explanation as to why the Soviets fell behind in military power, why the U.S. surged ahead, uh, and uh, many other things is the role of the semiconductor. And so that's how Chip War actually emerged out of my interest in Russian history. So yeah, that uh, that that's fascinating because um, I mean there's 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 a number of elements that kind of flow through from the it seems like from your earlier books to to this one, including in some sense the ineffectiveness of the you know what I think what you call the copy that strategy or basically stealing intellectual secrets and trying to use that as a basis for for technology. Um, but before we, we get into that, I, I'm just I want to hear a little bit about your process because I have to say the book was a little bit different than I expected. I, I I was thinking it would be a little kind of more of a dry technical geopolitical conflict type book, and all those elements are there. But really, um, it reads a little bit like a kind of a spy novel in a sense. You're telling <laughs> the history of the chip industry through the personal stories and plot lines of the the people and companies that were involved. And so, you know, you've got, you've got stories about, you know, Morris Chang, who's the founder of TSMC, Andy Grove, um, the founders of Samsung and Sony. You've got KGB agents in there. Um, how do, <laughs> tell us about your research process. How did you compile all these, you know, different stories and, and, and interviews and, and details? Well, one of the things that I realized when I started doing the research was that you couldn't tell the history of the chip and its impact on the world by just looking at governments. You had to understand the companies as well that produce the technology. And it's, it's an interesting challenge for a historian because it's easy to research governments. You know where to find them. They publish lots of papers. Uh, they often have archives that you can go in and look at the documents historically, whereas companies aren't usually like that. And so to understand the rise and fall of companies, you've really got to interview the people who work there. And so my research process involved a fair amount of looking at what governments were doing, but also a whole lot of interviewing people who had worked in the semiconductor industry, from the scientists who were devising new devices to CEOs who uh, ran uh, many of the companies that were discussed in the book um, to um, 
to their customers and their suppliers as well. And so I conducted over 150 interviews uh, with people in the industry, in the U.S., in Taiwan, in Japan, in Europe, um, some of whom uh, were there at the creation of the chip industry and were in their 90s, like Morris Chang, for example. Um, others who are uh, kind of at the cutting edge today uh, and are, are still working at, at chip firms. And those interviews gave me a really kind of granular understanding of what made the firms that succeeded succeed and what made the firms that failed fail, because you can get inside their cultures, understand what other business models didn't work. Um, but it also uh, helped me get to know a number of the uh, personalities involved in the chip industry. And I was uh, immediately struck by the extent to which there were some fascinating characters uh, involved, not only brilliant geniuses from the perspective of physics or engineering, of which there are, of course, many, but also just really interesting people, uh, people willing to take big bets, uh, to risk it all, uh, have large personalities, and uh, really wanted to uh, engage in, in a race to control and produce the world's most important technology. Um, and I, I left with the sense that you couldn't really understand how Moore's Law was possible, this doubling of computing power every single year that we take for granted or every other year. Um, you couldn't understand that by looking just at government policies or by corporate research. You had to look at the personalities as well, because ultimately it was the people who were driving it forward. And the ambition that undergirded the key figures was, I think, an extraordinary um, feature to, to watch and to understand. And so I, I tried to let some of that come through in the book. And, and hopefully as readers flip through the pages, they get to know some of the individuals who created these companies and the ambitions that drove them. So I, I, what, I, what I want to do is get us to talk about the, a couple of those key companies that, that, that are the choke points in the, in the industry. But before we do that, I, I do think it would be helpful helpful for a little bit of kind of high level, if you will, technical detail. I mean, people talk about semiconductors, chips all the time. And often I, I suspect they, they don't really know exactly what they mean. And by people, I, I mean me. Um, so can you, do you mean, just tell us, um, you know, at a really high level, like what, what is a semiconductor chip and why is it so critical? Why is it such an important piece of our technology infrastructure? So first off, on, on terminology, the words semiconductor, chip, and integrated circuit are all used basically interchangeably. So they refer to the same thing, which is a piece of material, usually silicon, uh, that has lots of little transistors carved into it. And a transistor is just a small circuit that's either on or off. If it's on, it creates a one. If it's off, it creates a zero. And all of the ones and zeros undergirding all data in computers, all software, all programs, all of these ones and zeros are uh, not just existing ethereally in the cloud, they're actually circuits that are on or off. And the process of getting access to more computing power is quite simply the process of carving more of these circuits into silicon chips. And so the first chips that were commercially available in the 1960s had just a handful of these circuits on them. So they could remember four ones or four zeros uh, at a time. Whereas today, if you go to an Apple store and buy a new iPhone, you'll get 15 billion of these transistors uh, on just the main chip in an iPhone. And there are actually many chips uh, inside of an iPhone. And this increase in the number of transistors you can put on a chip, and therefore the increase in the number of ones and zeros a chip can process or remember, has driven the exponential growth in computing power that we, uh, we call Moore's Law. And in order to 
cram more transistors onto chips, you got to make them smaller and smaller and smaller. And so the first transistors that were invented um, uh, over half a century ago were visible. Uh, they were so large you could see them. Uh, whereas today on a new iPhone, for example, each of the transistors will be the size of a coronavirus. And they're carved by the millions with basically perfect accuracy uh, every single day. Yeah, that's just, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. The, some of the, that kind of technological stories that, that you tell about the, the miniaturization of the process. Um, so, okay, th that's a good, ex so basically chips are then kind of embedded across, uh, you know, virtually any, any, uh, any product that uses technology these days. Um, and you talk about, Early on in the book, a, a kind of a typical process for manufacturing a chip, which I think does a great job of highlighting two of the key themes of the book. So you say, you know, like, just generically, you might start with, if you wanted to manufacture a chip, you might start with a blueprint from a UK-based firm that would be designed using software created by U.S. firms, maybe um, programmed by Israeli engineers, so you've got your design, um, and then you send it over to a facility in Taiwan to manufacture it. That facility buys gases and silicon from Japan, uh, and then carves um, the design into the silicon, as you said, using very, very precise equipment made by one of five companies, a Dutch company, Japanese companies, and, or three in the U.S. Then the, the chip, once it's manufactured, it gets packaged up, sent to Southeast Asia for testing, and then eventually sent to China for assembly into a, into a product, right? So that's kind of like how a chip is made. And when you think about that process, you see that there are these choke points that I referred to at the beginning, that there's vulnerabilities, that there's reliance on a few companies in a very long chain. So that's kind of theme number one, I would say. Um, and then the second theme is that China, again, this is a generic process, but China comes in at the very end. And you know they're they're utterly dependent, as you say, on firms to that are basically either in the U.S. or allied to the U.S. Uh, to get their technology. So those two themes, the the choke points, and if you will, China's vulnerability and the implications of that, are the things I'd I'd, I'd like to um, explore. So if we start with kind of choke points. Um, how did we get to a situation where we've got these choke points? Because the industry didn't start that way, right? The industry started with companies that designed and manufactured their own chips. So maybe could you walk us through just kind of like how we went from that initial stages to this much more complex world of integrated supply chains with these these key vulnerabilities in there? The key driver of of the dynamic of having choke points. And a choke point is just a, a production process that is very, very difficult to find a way around, find alternative suppliers for, or find some sort of substitute for. And the reason we've got so many choke points in the chip supply chain is because making chips is just extraordinarily complicated. The, the process of moving from four transistors per chip in 1960 to 15 billion or so today has required extraordinary specialization in all of the steps that you mentioned, in the software tools, in the chemicals used, in the machine tools uh, used to manufacture chips. And 
in order to produce the precision required, specialization has been the only way uh, to move forward. Companies have only been able to produce silicon that is 99.9999% pure by focusing solely on the process of purifying silicon. And the same thing is true for uh, all of the other steps. So we've needed that precision uh, enabled by specialization, but the effect of it has been to leave expertise in each part of the production process in the hands of just a couple, or in some cases, just one company. Um, and I think the, the the best way to understand the increase in precision is to look at what the process of making a chip looked like in 1960 or so, uh, when each chip had four transistors in it. So Bob Noyce, who was uh, one of the individuals who founded Fairchild Semiconductor and was known as the person uh, who, more than anyone else, created modern Silicon Valley. He was later founded Intel. Uh, when he was making his first chips in the uh, in the right around 1960, uh, he would jury rig all of the tools he needed himself. So rather than buying tools off the shelf, he would just make them himself. So one of the steps of the production process is called lithography, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a bit. Lithography means shining light in a specific pattern onto a chip where the light reacts to chemicals and lets you uh, create shapes on, on the piece of silicon. The, the first lithography tools that Bob Noyce used uh, in the 1960s uh, were made with a 20 millimeter camera lens that he bought from a local film shop. Today, if you want to buy a cutting edge lithography machine, it costs you $150 million. The machine takes multiple 747s to transport because it's so big, uh, and it involves the flattest mirrors ever made. So the transition from a 20 millimeter off-the-shelf camera lens to the flattest mirrors ever made inside the optics of a new lithography machine is just one example of the uh, huge jump in precision that uh, has been necessary and possible uh, for producing chips. But that's also why we don't have lots of people producing the tools used at each part of the process. It's easy to have a lot of people produce 20 millimeter camera lenses, but producing a $150 million uh, uh, tool involving the flattest mirrors ever made is something that you just can't have multiple companies do. It's just too hard. Yeah, that that story, I mean, that that's one of the ones I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about kind of two companies um, and one of them is ASML, um, the Dutch lithography company. So maybe we could just we could do that right now. Um, tell us a little bit about. So we we went from this, you know, world where Bob Noyce is kind of, you know, um, shining light on a chip through basically a homemade process to this. Um, I think you call it in the book the most complex piece of machinery ever assembled by humans. Um, and so I'd, I'd like people to understand a little bit more about the company that makes them and how they do. But before we do that, I, you know, to, I don't know how you feel about it, but to me, when I read about ASML, in some ways it was quite an uplifting story because it's kind of like this is what humans can actually do when we cooperate, right? Because they're, they're pulling together technology, expertise from all around the world, extraordinary complex, assembling it together and producing this machine that's projecting, you know, light um, onto it, just an ultra fine or, you know, a, a, the size that it's almost kind of mind-bogglingly small. And so I'm just like, wow, this is, you know, we can really do great stuff when we get together. But um, so maybe just tell us a little bit about that company and, and, and the product they make. 
So ASML is the biggest tech company in Europe, although most people have never heard of it. Uh, it was spun out of Philips, the Dutch electronics company, which uh, several decades ago was a fairly large semiconductor producer, no longer is. Um, and like many other chip makers, Philips at first was making all of their tools in-house, um, but eventually realized that uh, this was not a viable way to do business, and so spun off ASML uh, several decades ago. And at the time, there were a handful of companies that were making these types of lithography tools, uh, two in Japan, Canon and Nikon, a couple in the United States, so they were already on their last legs, and ASML. Uh, and in the early 1990s, um, there was a big debate in the chip industry about what the next type of lithography would be. Because one of the trends that had developed over the chip industry is that the the 20 millimeter camera lenses that Bob Noyce had used for the first chips used visible light to to carve onto chips. Invisible light has a wavelength of a couple hundred nanometers, depending on which color you're looking at. And that might seem like a pretty small amount, but for chips that today uh, have shapes measured in just a handful of nanometers, two, uh, 200 or 300 or 400 nanometers is too broad to do the precise carving that was necessary. And so there'd been a steady uh, decrease in the wavelength of light used. And there so was a debate to, in the early 1990s. Sorry about, to interrupt, yeah. Chris. Just, so just to like um, summarize that, what you're saying is that you're you're... You're shining light um, essentially through a mask to, to create a pattern on a silicon chip. And the actual wavelength of visible light that's coming through that mask is, um, is wider than what you're trying to <laughs> create the pattern on, right? So the, the, you have to move to a different type of light. You have to move from visible light to, um, to um, ex was extreme ultraviolet light, which has much, much smaller wavelength in order to imprint that pattern. That, that's the kind of... That's right. Okay. And so one of the questions was, well, what's the right new type of light to move towards? And there's different wavelengths that, that were debated. And EUV, extreme ultraviolet, which is a little bit past X-ray in the, the light spectrum, uh, was one option, but most people thought it was impossible. Just too hard to do um, for two reasons. One, because x-rays uh, go through materials, and so developing a set of optics and mirrors that could reflect x-rays was going to be very hard. Uh, and two, because it was really difficult to create enough uh, EUV light that you to actually get the quantities needed to do the carving because you need a fair amount of it to react with the chemicals and, and carve the patterns for you. Uh, but ASML bet to the contrary that it would be possible. Uh, and they spent three decades and uh, many tens of billions of dollars developing the systems needed to produce a lot of EUV and then the systems needed to collect the EUV after it was produced using these ultra-flat mirrors and direct it towards uh, a silicon wafer. And so... Today, just to kind of walk you through what one of these machines will do, they've got tiny balls of tin, 30 microns, so 30 millionths of a meter wide, dropping at uh, a very rapid speed, several hundred miles an hour, through a, a canister inside the machine. They pulverize each ball of tin with a laser, and after shooting it twice, it explodes into a plasma at several hundred thousand degrees Fahrenheit. So we're talking 50 times hotter than the surface of the sun inside of this machine. And that plasma uh, emits light, uh, this UV light at 13.5 nanometers, which is then collected by a set of mirrors. But because of the, the mirror challenge that I mentioned, 
um, x-rays go through most types of materials. Uh, producing these mirrors was one of the hardest parts uh, of the EUV system. Uh, and so just the production of the mirrors itself is sort of a technological marvel and getting them flat enough so that they don't lose any of the light that they've collected, but they direct it exactly the direction it needs to go uh, was another challenge. So they've got the flattest mirrors uh, ever uh, ever produced by humans in each of these machines. And then the light is collected via these optics and it shines through a mask uh, onto the silicon wafer where it eventually uh, carves the chip. And so that's, that's how this uh, machine works. And it took three decades to develop. And today, if you want to buy one, it'll cost you $150 million, which is the price of the precision that a UV tool makes possible. Yeah, that that's. I think it, what you say in the book that the mirror was so pure that if it was scaled up to the size of Germany, that the biggest irregularity would be a tenth of a millimeter. This is phenomenal. So okay, so that this is a lithography machine made by this Dutch company, and the, this company is the only company in the world that can produce these machines. And why are those machines so critical? So they are the the only company that can produce them. They have 100% market share, and I think they will for a very long time. Uh, and yet their machines are critical because you can't make an advanced chip without them. Um, the precision patterning that you can do with light at 13.5 nanometers lets you carve very small shapes at high volume. And if you're trying to use visible light or even ultraviolet light, you just can't get the precision you need. So every new chip in an iPhone, every new chip in a PC, data center chips are all now using this tool to carve ultra small shapes and pack more and more transistors and thus more and more computing power onto them. So everyone listening to this podcast will currently be benefiting uh, from the precision carving of an EUV machine, enabling more computing power that they take for granted. So without the, these machines, there's no, there's no iPhones, there's no, presumably, you know, supercomputers that, you know, AI technologies relied on also use these chips that are produced by the ASML machine. That's right. Um, so that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a clear, if you will, choke point. Um, the other choke point that I think people are probably a little bit more familiar with is the firm that dominates the manufacturing of these chips, which is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, which has been in the news a lot lately because Warren Buffett's firm has just bought um, you know, a sizable stake in it. Um, tell us about the history of TSMC, why it's so important. And it, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but it seems to me that it was innovative on multiple dimensions, but perhaps the most important was just the business model it chose to pursue. So could you maybe just kind of tell us a little bit about how this company started and why it's so important? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. It is a story of business model innovation leading to technological innovation. You wouldn't have had one without the other. Uh, TSMC was founded in 1987 in Taiwan by a gentleman named Morris Chang, who I think is the most underrated and underappreciated businessman of the last century. 
Uh, he was born in mainland China, fled the communist revolution, enrolled as the first Chinese student, uh, the only Chinese student in his class at Harvard, and then went on to, uh, in some ways, single-handedly build the uh, the manufacturing capabilities that made chip making possible in the U.S. Um, but he was passed over for the CEO job of Texas Instruments in the 1970s, and one of the greatest errors T.I. ever made, and <laughs> well, was looking for a new they, job. <laughs> why did they pass him over? I was curious. You don't You don't say that in the book. Was there... I don't know. Why do you think they, they didn't make him CEO? You know, it's it's not exactly clear. Um, he was known to have um, a pretty sharp set of elbows, um, which I think was key to his his success as a manager in some ways, but everyone recalled him being a pretty hard-driving manager, and so that may have been um, part of it. Um, I've heard people also uh, suggest that it was because he was Chinese, um, and that was part of it. I, I don't know that that's true, but I've heard that suggested as well. Um, so I, I don't have high confidence in either of those explanations, but certainly it was, in hindsight, a historical error um, for TI and for Texas. It, it could have been that TSMC stood for the Texas Semiconductor Manufacturing Company rather than the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And the world would look very different today had that been the case. But it, it was the Taiwanese government that swept in and offered him essentially a blank check in the mid-'80s to build a new business in Taiwan. And he... All, even in his days at TI, he was already exploring a new business model, as you mentioned. Before that point, almost all chips were both designed and manufactured by the same company. And Chang realized that as chips got more complex, both design and manufacturing were getting harder, and manufacturing was getting more expensive because you needed to buy these ever more precise tools. And as a result of that, he looked into the future and envisioned a world in which companies that design chips wouldn't have to worry about manufacturing. They wouldn't need the expertise or the capital investment required because they could outsource manufacturing to a firm that focused solely on manufacturing. And today we call those firms foundries, companies that manufacture chips but don't design any. And today there are a number of companies that are, are use this foundry business model, but there were none when Morris Chang started up TSMC with this in mind. Um, but it proved to be the right business model because it let him sell chips to multiple different customers, which let him build huge scale, reaping efficiencies both in terms of purchasing uh, equipment and materials, but also in terms of honing its technology. Because today there's a pretty clear relationship between the number of chips you produce and the efficiency at which you produce them, because you can learn from each chip you produce and hone your processes. And so because of the scale that the business model allowed, TSMC was able to learn more about the manufacturing processes, and today it has the world's most advanced manufacturing processes in no small part because it's the world's largest chip maker. And when you say it's the world's largest chip maker, can you put that in perspective? You know, give us some sense um, for how reliant we are on TSMC. Every one of us touches TSMC's chips every single day. Um, almost all smartphones have TSMC chips inside. Uh, easily a third of PCs do. Data centers are chock full of TSMC semiconductors. And then if you go down the value chain to simpler goods using simpler chips like dishwashers and microwaves, they, they too often have TSMC chips inside. Older technology, but nevertheless there. So over one third of the new computing power the world adds each year, over one third of the ones and zeros that are used for computing, comes from chips produced by TSMC. And where does 
Intel fit into this picture? Because Intel is a, is a company that most Americans know and, you know, I think most Americans think of as a chip producer, and they, they are a chip producer, but um, they're a company that, you know, was founded by, um, you know, the, the kind of legends of the business um, and uh, run by Andy Grove for a long time. Where do they fit into the picture? Are they a, you know, are, are they potentially a competitor for TSMC um, or, or are they being kind of left by the wayside? Well, right now, Intel is trying to turn itself around. For most of the decades after it was founded in the late 1960s, Intel was one of the leading U.S. chipmakers, both in terms of technological capabilities but also in terms of business success. And they've been immensely profitable over um, the past several decades, but they've missed a couple of key technological transitions in the past um, two decades. Uh, first, when Steve Jobs approached Intel and asked the company to produce chips for iPhones, Intel turned it down, thinking that smartphones would be a niche product with low margins. And so they missed the huge wave associated with smartphones over the past 15 years. And then when it came to the uh, the rise in uh, focus on chips for AI purposes, artificial intelligence, about a decade ago, Intel was late to the game on that too. And so both in smartphones and in data centers, which is where most AI chips go, Intel has been losing, either had very little market share to begin with, or has been losing market share to competitors because it missed key technological transitions. And as uh, its size has uh declined relative to TSMC or to Samsung, Intel's ability to keep up with new generations of manufacturing technology has also slipped. And so although it used to be the most advanced chip maker in terms of manufacturing capabilities, today it's very clearly behind both TSMC and South Korea's Samsung too. And so it's trying to turn around right now, trying to catch up, launching a foundry business arm, as well as rolling out new chips for AI and data centers. But there's a long way to go. Um, and the new CEO, Pat Gelsinger, has a, I think, a pretty tough task ahead of him in terms of turning Intel around. Apparently, uh, you said he's done a deal with ASML to give them first crack at using their next generation um, lithography machine. Is that right? That's right. And so that, that I think, could give Intel a bit of a leg up, but I think the company's got not just uh, challenges in in terms of its next generation manufacturing technology, it's also got to sort out its business model. Because right now it's pretty clear, I think to most observers of the industry that the foundry model works better than the integrated model that Intel is stuck with of both designing and manufacturing its chips in-house. It's one of the few companies in the processor chip space that still has that business model. And it just seems to make a lot less sense today uh, relative to the alternative. And you know, and you, you do say in the book it, that, hey, look, it's easy to bemoan the fact that we've offshored production and we've lost, aside from, from Intel, we've lost a lot of the capability to produce chips domestically. On the other hand, um, the U.S. does still have some world-class firms that design chips, so what you call fabless firms, firms that just do the, the chip design but don't produce them, and that, you know, they, it's very unlikely that they would have be, you know, have those competitive positions if they also had to manufacture, you know, chips themselves. So that, that you know, specialization that helped TSMC develop this kind of huge, important, market-leading um, position also has allowed U.S. software firms 
to, um, you know, to develop similar positions. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And if you if you look at the innovation that TSMC has enabled in Silicon Valley, there's a number of great examples of this. And we don't normally think, um, although perhaps we should, of manufacturing advances in Taiwan, enabling innovation in Silicon Valley. But that's exactly what's happened in this case. Companies like NVIDIA, for example, which produces chips for AI and data centers. NVIDIA is one of the most valuable US chip makers today yet it manufactures none of its ships, and it was possible to found it um, precisely because it was able to access TSMC's manufacturing capabilities. So the founders of NVIDIA never wanted to do manufacturing, and that was a viable business model because when they were founded, uh, it was already the case that they could turn to TSMC and make their chips. I think the other example of this is Apple, which most people don't think of as a chip maker. Um, But in fact, Apple is one of the world's largest chip designers because it designs in-house many of the chips, including the key processor chip, inside of its devices. And Apple has never had to manufacture a single chip because it too can uh, take its designs to TSMC in Taiwan and get them all manufactured. And I think it's unlikely that Apple would uh, be designing its own chips if it weren't able to outsource the manufacturing to a specialist like TSMC. So we've got choke points that that I identified. We've got the TSMC as kind of the manufacturing choke point. We've got ASML as, I guess, also a manufacturing choke point or producing equipment for manufacturing. But then, you know, really the you know the U, the U.S. and um, software designers are. Would you also consider them, you know, a choke point? Are they they absolutely critical to most of the technology that goes out there? Yeah, if, if you want to design a chip with 15 billion transistors on it, uh, you're not going to do that by hand. Although uh, drawing out by hand was how the initial chips were designed and they only had a couple thousand transistors on them. And so you need software to do it for you. Um, and software doesn't just uh, let you draw pictures or schematics of where the transistors go on the chip. They also help you model how those chips will work so you can understand their functionality before you have to produce the first one. Um, And that software is designed uh, and produced by three companies, largely, all of which are based in the U.S. Uh, And so the U.S. has been able in recent years to cut off uh, foreign companies' access to software, which makes it basically impossible for them to design cutting-edge chips. Yeah, let's talk about that. That helps us kind of migrate to that second big theme, which is, you know, China's position uh, in the world and and the vulnerability that that it feels and that probably has. Um, you 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 talk about two Chinese firms, um, Chenhua and Huawei, and both I think are good examples of how the U.S. has turned these choke points into leverages of power. So perhaps we could maybe just briefly talk about them. Let's talk about Genwa first, because I think it's a more straightforward case of, you know, what people think of as sort of industrial espionage, espionage leading to a, you know, could have potentially led to a competitive advantage um, and elimination of a U.S. firm, uh, and then how the U.S. used these choke points to kind of thwart it. Yeah, so Jinhua was a company based in China's Fujian province, um, and it was looking to get into the market for a type of memory chip called DRAM chips. And there are three companies today in the world, two in South Korea, one in the U.S., that produce uh, cutting-edge versions of these chips. And uh, Jinhua uh, worked with a couple of 
uh, Micron employees in Taiwan uh, to try to uh, to succeed in stealing um, some so, of so the. So Micron is the uh, Micron's the U.S. firm that that that's produced right. the DRAM chips. Yep. That's right, and they have facilities uh, in multiple different countries, including one in Taiwan. Uh, and so Jinhua um, worked with um, these uh, employees of Micron's Taiwan plant uh, to acquire uh, some uh, trade secrets uh, as to how Micron produces its ships and try to take this to Jinhua's facilities in China and use them to upgrade their production capabilities there. Uh, and the, the Chinese government intervened pretty clearly on behalf of uh, Jinhua, um, accusing Micron of violating Jinhua's intellectual property from the things that Jinhua had stolen from Micron. Um, and it was a real challenge for Micron because China is every chipmaker's biggest market. And so individual companies really struggle to push back against the Chinese government because they've got to be able to sell their products in China for commercial viability. And so they went to the U.S. government and asked for help. Um, and for a long time, the U.S. government had really struggled to deal with these types of cases. The Chinese courts had ruled that their patent law said one thing. Um, it's you know hard to argue against patent law decisions by courts because there's a judicial process, even if you think it's a kangaroo court. How do you prove it? And so for a long time, the U.S. tied itself up in knots, trying to find legal justifications and legal standards of proof uh, behind the fact that uh, the Chinese government was supporting uh, its companies as they were engaged in IP theft. Uh, and by uh, the time of the Jinhua case, frustration had bubbled up both in the chip industry but in the U.S. government to the point where the U.S. took a new type of action uh, and made it illegal to sell certain types of equipment to Jinhua um, without which it's impossible to make advanced chips. And so it essentially put Jinhua out of business. And today Jinhua is no longer producing chips because they can't acquire the machinery that it needs. Uh, and this was a, a real new type of punishment uh, for a Chinese firm. And it illustrated in a really visceral way the power the U.S. government had to, on its own, unilaterally decide that U.S. equipment couldn't be shipped to a given firm. And that amounted to a death sentence to Jinhua. Uh, and any other firm that found itself on the wrong side of U.S. regulators. Yes, I mean, that was, and that was just to put us in kind of the in the time that was the Trump administration that ended up doing that. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And so yeah. it was happening at the same time as the the quote unquote trade war and the dispute over tariffs. And I think a lot of people at the time saw those processes as, as kind of interlinked. That there was a tech dispute and a trade dispute, and they were both about economic issues, but I think actually they were driven by really different factors. The The concern about semiconductors and China's advances in semiconductors was was emerging from really deep within the U.S. national security state. The intelligence agencies, the military uh, were very, very concerned, not just the commercial ramifications of China's chip industry and its advances, but also what this would enable China to do on the intelligence front and in terms of military technology. So that that... that um, the case of Genoa, uh, I think, is I think probably if you kind of read through it and listen to your description, you're like, well, okay, that was it's a, it's a clear case of theft of intellectual property, and and there was punishment meted out, and um, you could argue whether or not it was too extreme, but I mean, it does seem like a more clear cut case of black and white, whereas Huawei seems to be more complex. Huawei is the Chinese telecom equipment maker that's been in the news a lot. And you tell quite a balanced story about Huawei. In some sense, it felt to me like 
they were following the playbook in large part that Japanese firms had done, that Korean firms had done, initially starting off as a low-cost producer, gaining some you know, market share, reinvesting in their business, moving up the technology chain. Um, um, so not really growing uh, based on theft of intellectual property, although there was clear, or not clear, but there, was, there were accusations that they were doing some of that. Um, and that, but you know, eventually they became so kind of, if you will, embedded in the system that it became uncomfortable for the U.S. and its allies to have a Chinese firm um, so embedded in the technology infrastructure, the technology ecosystem, that they decided to that, that it wasn't basically it wasn't sustainable. Um, so, tell us about what happened to to Huawei. I mean, do you agree with that description that I gave and and how did the U.S. kind of um, use its its levers of power to um, to influence them? Yeah, I think that description is exactly um, exactly spot on. Um, Huawei was popular among telecoms companies because it provided reasonably good equipment at low prices, uh, and that's what it was quite good at. And the U.S. government uh, had a number of different criticisms of Huawei um, about selling equipment to Iran that was violating sanctions, about um, espionage. But the, the key challenge with Huawei was, as you say, it was too big and too embedded in networks for the U.S. to trust that it wouldn't be used for espionage in the future or for coercion in the future. And if you study the history of network technology going back to the days of the telegram, uh, what you find is that at points of geopolitical crisis or tension, it's basically universally been the case that whichever countries control the telecom infrastructure will use it for their purposes. So in World War I, the first day of the war, the British cut off Germany's access to its telegraph network, making it very difficult for Germany to send telegraphs across the sea. Um, and in the Cold War, uh, both the KGB and the U.S. National Security Agency got um, uh, privileged access to advanced computers and the ability to tap their own telephone networks for spying purposes. So there's, there's basically been a, a guarantee in the past that telecoms infrastructure plus advanced computing power will be used by great powers for espionage and for military purposes um, when it is possible to do so. And so the U.S. government was looking at Huawei's growing market share in the world's telecom infrastructure, the types of equipment that you need to connect your cell phone to the internet, and asking itself whether it was plausible to imagine there were ways to guarantee the functioning and the privacy of these networks um, amid a intensifying geopolitical competition, or whether it was just inevitable that if China was a geopolitical adversary, that Huawei would be used in the interest of the Chinese government. And it concluded that the answer was yes, that, that was unavoidable, and therefore the only real remedy uh, was to block it out. And so that's what we've seen over the past several years is a blocking of Huawei from U.S., Japanese, Australian, and many European cell phone networks. So this seems to me an extraordinarily important point because I think if you follow the logic through, what we're saying is that we we will not accept, and when I say we, I'm talking about the West in the kind of broadest possible sense, a, a, a Chinese firm kind of integrated into our ecosystem in the same way we would a Japanese, a Korean firm. So that basically means, if you follow that logic through, and feel free to disagree with me, that, that there's going to have to be two, in some sense, fully separate 
telecommunications and technology infrastructure systems out there, right? That, 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 that they can't be integrated. That, that they're basically saying, hey, globalization, we're, we're drawing a line under it. Well, I think the West is saying to China for these critical types of technology, you're welcome to use our system, but we're not going to use your system. And so in some places like chip making equipment, China is still using Western systems because it doesn't have its own. But in places where China's got the same capabilities as the West, like telecoms equipment, then yes, the, the inevitable result is two different systems, a decoupling, if you will, of the tech infrastructure. Yeah, and so there's various implications. I know you know your time is, is short here, but you know, if I'm China, I'm definitely not accepting that deal, right? I'm not saying, well, <laughs> oh sure, we'll we'll use your systems um, where we have to. Um, so that kind of brings us to you know the point, I, I guess that that uh, influences the title of your book, Chip War. That you know there is a, a serious potential for for conflict here, uh, where you know in particular with TSMC, it sits only you know a seven minute flight from China, and it's um, it critical to the world's technology. Um, and so it's it seems to me the the most likely flashpoint for a conflict between the two countries, um, which I don't think is particularly new or controversial statement. But what what I wanted to ask you was this: um, earlier in, in in the year, I interviewed uh, James Falk, who wrote a book called Financial Cold War, and his thing was like, look, um, if we want to pre- present uh, prevent conflict between China and the U.S. in financial terms we should use the concept of mutually assured destruction. In other words, instead of compete, building two competing systems, let's integrate the systems so deeply that breaking them apart would be too disastrous for both countries to want to do. And it felt to me, as so I'm reading the last part of your book, and the last part of your book is you outline various scenarios of potential conflict between China and the U.S. And in each one of them, it seemed to me like both sides would lose more than they would gain. Um, so maybe we, we were at a point of mutually assured destruction in, in technology. Um, do, you, do you agree with that? Disagree with that? Um, do, you, do you think deeper integration is, is actually a more enlightened way forward? It sounds like that's not what we're going to end up with. Um, how, how do you think about that? Well, I think that the problem with having a lot of faith in mutually assured economic destruction is that historically it hasn't always worked. You know, Britain and Germany were major trading partners right up until the outbreak of World War I. And then immediately they flipped and Britain launched a very aggressive blockade of Germany trying to starve the German people. So in a matter of months, it went from big trading partners to trying to cut off German food supplies. Same thing with U.S. and Japan for World War II. The U.S. was one of Japan's biggest trading partners, and then the war started and blockade uh, went into force. So I think there are some places historically where you can say mutually assured economic destruction worked, but there are also a lot of high-profile cases where it didn't work. And just this year, I think the uh, failure of Germany's strategy to integrate deeply with Russia in economic terms has not provided the results that were hoped for. So I hope it's true that 
we're in a state of mutually assured economic destruction, but I worry that it's not true. Uh, and that worry is one of the things that inspired me to write Chip War and to understand what are the real risks if, in fact, the interdependence we've got right now turns out not to be a stabilizing force, but turns out to put us in an even more vulnerable position if, in fact, something disastrous does happen in the Taiwan Straits. Um, I, I want to end with a... Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I can start the podcast with my admission that, you know... It, I use the word chip. I don't always know what it means. Um, so I kind of started with a admission of my ignorance, maybe end with the same thing in that, you know, a lot of the stories you tell about the individual companies in the book are one of you have market power um, and then your technology is disrupted. Is there anything on the horizon that could disrupt the chip? Is there technology that could replace it or, you know, change it in such a way that these current choke points disappear? Um, or is that just a, <laughs> is, that, is that a tech, technologically illiterate question? Does that not make any sense? No, I think, I think that's a great question. And I'll give you two, um, two answers that are, are somewhat hypothetical today, but, but could be quite relevant in 10 years time. The first is looking at quantum computing um, which relies on very different underlying technology and still remains somewhat far off from commercialization and practical application. But when it is realized, uh, will really transform the ways we compute. It won't make traditional digital chips um, irrelevant, but it will, I think, change the, the, the value chain in terms of what we pay for, what types of chips we use in different use cases, things like that. So I think when quantum comes, it, it will be quite meaningful in reshape, reshaping the industry. Second is the forward march of Moore's law, which has worked for 60 years, is not guaranteed. It's a prediction, actually, not a law. And that could well break down in the future. And if it does... Um, that will also reshape the chip industry. It will make some choke points even more important, but it also may, might make some cho choke points less important. Um, if in fact, uh, Moore's law slows, it will be harder to differentiate the cutting edge from the lagging edge. Um, and so that could also uh, really profoundly shape the industry. Now, I, I'm an optimist on Moore's law. I think we've still got at least a decade of progress and who knows beyond that point, but there are some people who are more pessimistic. And if the pessimists are right uh, and Moore's law is ending sooner, uh, that will also have a major impact on the shape of the industry. Well, Chris, um, thanks, for, thanks for joining us um, and um, enlightening us about, you know, things that we use every day, but we really don't understand um, often how, how important they are kind of geopolitically. Um, the book is called Chip War. Um, it's eminently readable. It's fun and uh, really eye-opening. So um, thanks for writing it, Chris, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, with that, I'll uh, pass it back over to Niels. Thank you so much, Chris and Kevin, for a super insightful conversation looking at the world of semiconductor chips and their importance for the world that we live in. Chris had some really great stories to share, even if we only scratched the surface of what is in his book. So I really loved this conversation. I found the discussion about the choke points within the chip manufacturing process fascinating. And of course, the background and history of a firm like ASML, which is much less in the news compared to TSMC and how they have spent more than three decades perfecting the art of lithography after spinning out of Philips is just amazing. 
and the whole explanation that Chris provided as to how they create this special light needed in order to print on these tiny chips is just mind-boggling. Of course, the history of TSMC and its founder, who apparently was passed over as new CEO of Texas Instruments in the 1980s, was very interesting, and the fact that Warren Buffett in Q3 of this year bought $4 billion worth of shares is also pretty newsworthy. Make sure you go and follow Chris and Kevin's work, as well as getting a copy of their books, because as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.